This podcast is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S.co. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. Hi, Caesar. Hi, Bernard. How are you? I'm well, and thank you for hosting me at Google Asia Pacific HQ in Singapore. And who do we have here today? We have Caesar Sangupta, the Vice President for Product Management for Google, and also the guy who's spearleading what is called the Next Billions Project. And this is probably going to be the most interesting, and you're my first Google guest. So I wanted to get to know you better. We know each other for some time. Maybe we should start in, how do you get started in technology? So first of all, Bernard, thanks for having me on. A pleasure talking to you. We've known each other for a bit. It's exciting being in Asia, so fun talking to you. How do you get started in technology? Like many people, I'm an engineer, went to school, did engineering, you know, got into technology. I actually worked in a startup in Singapore called Accentuate for a few years before I left following my wife around the world and then at Google most of my time I've spent as a product manager building Chromebooks Chrome OS and that's a short you know, sort of history of what I've been doing and then I moved back a year and a half back primarily to start looking at broadly APAC the developments that are happening here what Google should be doing here as well as sort of the new kinds of products we could build because the next billion users, not the next billion dollars, mm. to be clear, next billion users are all going to be primarily here. Of course, in the course of your career from engineer now running an entire products team, thinking about what's most interested to the next billion users, what are the kind of interesting career lessons you have learned so far? So I think one of the most interesting till now, if you think about Google, we have a few products which have a billion users. But those products have largely been used by users who are very similar to us. So our natural intuition, you know, of how products should work, works very well. But in many ways, the next billion users are sort of showing us the future. They are all largely mobile, right? Both of us started using computers first on our desktop and then a laptop and a phone. But the next billion users are starting to use computing on a smartphone. The way they use computers, the way they think of technology, the way they think of services is very different from what we've seen from our first billion users. So a big part of what we are learning is, you know, how do you sort of understand these new users who are who tend to be very young, urban, in environments that are very different from what you and I may have been brought up in. And so we're sort of relearning a lot of our tools of how do you do research, how do you test your products, how do you optimize your products for these users. It's been an interesting journey so far. And, you know, we're just at the very starting of the journey, but it's clear that you know, the way sort of the world of computing services are going are going to be determined by these users in Delhi and Jakarta and Bangalore and Manila, which is super fascinating. And personally to you in progressing through thinking about this, do you have any like personal career lessons that you have learned as well? I think the big, some big career lessons. One is the efforts, efforts in this area need to require a lot of trying and prototyping and building and testing out on users. These markets are also very different from the US or even Singapore. And so you have to learn how to build for phones that may not have the same kind of capabilities that you know we are used to or the ones that you know we have in our pockets or, or network conditions are not the same. But at the same time, users want exactly the same services. They want the same products and the same quality of experiences. And so how do you provide all those services and those that quality of experience and that magic with all these in these circumstances? So that's been personally very, very fascinating to, to see and learn. And probably we're now talking about one of the most interesting topics because a lot of people have been asking me and 
I'm also looking at some of your recent announcements about Google's next billion project. But before that, I think it's very important to talk about Google. I'm sure all my audience know Google because like for myself, I spent at least two hours using Google search every day. Thank you so, so much. <laughs> and also other services from Android, Gmail and everything else. So the first thing I probably would like you to help me to introduce to my audience is the introduction to Google. Can you talk a little bit about Google's vision and mission across the world? Look, our mission is, you know, we, Larry and Sergey actually laid down the mission many years back when, when Google went IPO in 2004, it's to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and you know useful for everyone. And what's really exciting about that is how broad the mission is and how true to that mission the company has stayed throughout. So you know, it's, it's, this is my 10th year at Google. I'm still thoroughly enjoying it. I love how the company is very focused on users, focused on doing the right thing, as well as on building some really cool stuff. And I know you work for Sundar Pichai, who's the current CEO of Google. And- and I think it's probably interesting. Just a quick side question. How is it working for him like? Oh, working for Sundar is fantastic. I've had the fortune of working with him for the past nine years. And, you know, he's he's a charismatic leader. He is a wonderful person. He's also, in many ways, a very interesting combination of a product visionary and a very humble, empathetic person. And uh, what that means is, you know, you as, as someone working with him, you get to learn a lot. But he also works with people and understands people in a way that is very empowering. And so it's been fantastic working with him. And, you know, I think, you know, I couldn't think of a better person to lead Google at this time mm. than, um, than Sundar. So what is the footprint of Google in Asia Pacific? Is it specifically mobile first? So look, Google, I mean, we have a very large business in Asia mm. Pacific, right? Most of our users are here. We have a very large search and ads business. Android, in many ways, is predominantly produced here. This is it's a place where Android is very, very heavily used. And many of our products, Gmail, Google Maps, YouTube, are extremely popular here. Chrome actually, Chrome the browser, became number one first in India and Manila and Philippines and Malaysia before anywhere else in the world. So APAC is tremendously important to us. I think our footprint in terms of product and engineering, we have very accomplished teams in India. We have very good teams in China, and now we're building an engineering team in Singapore. You know, the teams in India and China have been doing global work, so they build products for all of the world. Team in Singapore will do a bunch of global work too, but over time, we're also starting to look at like, what can we build for the users in this region so that we can actually start serving our users who are right next to us? our families, our friends. And you've been with Google for more than nine years. I know you have worked on some very interesting projects, for example, with Chromebooks. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the initiatives you have done with Chromebooks with Asian countries? So Chromebooks in Asian countries is still relatively nascent and early. Where with Chromebooks, we've primarily focused sort of on the US, Western Europe, Australia. In the US, as I'm sure you know, you're well aware, in the education sector, Chromebooks now have over 50% of the, of the market share. We sell more than everybody else put together. In the consumer as well as in enterprise, Chromebooks are starting to do very, very well. But more importantly, what Chromebooks have really achieved and shown in the world of computing is that it is possible to build computers that are very high quality, that are safe, that are secure, that are super fast, and yet that are very, very affordable. You can now go pick up a $149 Chromebook at Walmart in the U.S., and it's good enough that, you know, I would be proud to give it to my mother. My father's using one of those. And that's something that, you know, we feel very proud about, about having brought computing to, to everyone. And now we're starting to invest a lot in international, particularly in APAC. You know, Australia has always been a country where Chromebooks have done incredibly well, particularly in the enterprise sector. But we're recently getting started now in India and Malaysia, where Chromebooks are starting to get initial traction. Malaysia actually the, is in many ways leading on that front because the Malaysian Education Ministry 
has given out Chromebooks to about 110,000 schools. These are being pretty heavily used and, you know, they're rebuilding sort of their educational methodology around them. So it also penetrates not just to the very urban part of Malaysia, but also into the rural area, the villages where kids can actually have access to that, these online and start to build interesting web services as well. Absolutely, Bernard. I mean, that the, you know, the power of the internet is that it equalizes opportunity for everyone. And by, you know, what the Malaysian government's done by bringing Chromebooks to schools in far-flung areas is now those kids have access to exactly the same kind of technologies and services that, you know, a kid in urban Singapore with, you know, a terabyte network, gigabyte network has. One interesting thing I know is that from Google's current innovations, there are already various initiatives that are focused on the next billion. For example, Android One Project Loon and some other projects. And Mm -hmm. recently I was in the Ting Publishing conference as a guest speaker. So I know you'll talk a little bit about that. Would you want to talk a little bit about how the current innovations are actually pushing the next billion project? Yeah. So there's, uh, actually, uh, you talked about a couple. There's another which has done incredibly well, which is YouTube Offline. So about a year back, along with Android One, we introduced the ability in India to take YouTube videos offline for a period of, I think, 48 hours. And that's been tremendously successful. You know, usage in India has been remarkable. And it's been it's gone so well that now we've rolled it out to, I think, about 80 countries around the world. So that's a feature that we first built for the next billion users, but that made so much sense for everyone that it's now gone global. And so there are many more similar things that we're continuing to do. For example, you know, the India, the Cricket World Cup in India just got over. And if you were in India or actually anywhere in the world and you just typed Cricket World Cup, you would get this really beautiful, immersive cricket experience, which wasn't just showing you the results, but it allowed you to engage with Google, Google and find out more about the players, the teams, how they've done, get a lot of information. We've done similar experiences, for example, for Bollywood movies. And we're continuing to do these kinds of things so that we start offering relevant services for our users in this mm. region. So, for example, like Android One, I think is a very interesting initiative because it, it, it really touches the mobile operating system and trying to get the handset down. The last I remember is 130 US dollars, but I'm sure the number has gone down. So can you talk a little bit about that initiative itself and how is it actually growing in markets like India? So Android One, primary goal behind Android One was to bring, to raise the quality bar for phones in countries like India, primarily by helping OEMs deliver updates to the users. You know, we we see a lot of phones that are running very old versions of Android, and that's a huge challenge both for users as well as for developers, because Android's gone much further than, you know, it was in Jelly Bean or KitKat. And, you know, it, it feels sad that there's a free operating system that our users are not able to get access to the latest features on if OEMs are not able to deliver updates to them. So one of the interesting things is, you know, Android One definitely has changed the dynamic in terms of how people think about updates. If you go to India now, you know, even just as far back as a year and a half, nobody cared about updates. But if you walk into a shop now, you will see OEMs starting to sell you phones with a promise of updates. Many of them are delivering on it. Some I wish would do better at delivering on it. But it's, it's really remarkable to see that change that has happened. Uh, so we took the same learning out of India and then we've expanded now globally. So Android One is in roughly about, I think, 15 to 20 countries right now. I'm forgetting the exact number, including a large number of African countries, Turkey, you know, Indonesia, Philippines, obviously. In many of these countries, the phones are starting to do really well. And you can start seeing OEMs not just deliver, you know, low cost phones, but also start delivering very high quality 
phones that are slightly higher in price that you know enable them to sort of expand the same services to pretty much everyone. So, you know, we're very happy. It's a long-term effort for us. We'll keep pushing along along that lines in trying to support our OEM ecosystem, support the ODM ecosystem in being able to bring updates of Android faster mm. to our users. So one of the impressive things I've been observing Google is also not just creating Android One Project Loon, you know, giving Wi-Fi, starting with New Zealand. I think they're going to try out in other countries soon. There's also the existing improvements to the existing products. For example, I know Gmail, you can do offline. Maps, you can do offline. Can you talk a little bit about those existing initiatives and where are they going as well? Yeah. So that's actually been a big focus for my team, which is working with the other teams at Google to help their features make, you know, be much better used by our next billion users. So I talked about YouTube offline. Maps offline is another example. That's actually going very, very well. Maps offline, for those of your uh, listeners who don't know, allows you to take a map offline. Of, also, you know, you can take the whole map of Singapore offline. And then even when you're not connected, you'll still get directions. You'll be able to find directions. It's, it's super cool. And we're continuing to do more work along that lines. Similarly, as I said, in search, we're starting to do a lot of country-based experiences. Over the course of the next couple of years, you will see our existing you know, products focus a lot more on our users in APAC, on building services that work better with, you know, where network might be slightly more challenged, or for example, when the phone may not be very high spec. One of the interesting things we did was we built this search light experience which actually looks and feels like Google search, but it, it manifests itself on low spec phones on a low network. And it actually saves about, it's about 4x faster and saves about 10x data. So it's gonna, you know, it's pretty impressive gain what you can do when you really focus on the unique circumstances of users in APAC. Given three of the five BRIC nations, B-R-I-I-C, Brazil, Russia, India, Indonesia, and China, nations are in Asia with about a total of 2.5 to 2.7 billion population. How does Google segment the emerging and frontier markets for the next billion? I actually hate the term emerging markets because yeah. it kind of, you know, it's, I feel like in many ways, these markets have emerged and gone way beyond, <laughs> you know, what, what users in other markets are doing. Effectively, the Next Billion User project encompasses the effort across all these countries that you mentioned, you know, India, China, Indonesia, Brazil, Russia. You know, the couple more that should get added to the list are Nigeria and, you know, Kenya and very large economies in Africa, too. And so, you know, for us, we're looking at there's many commonalities across these users. Again, as I said, they tend to be mobile first. In many cases, mobile only. Often, they're they're connecting not on Wi-Fi but on mobile networks. You know, the users tend to be very young. The users tend to be pretty urban, and so these are dynamics that you know we're using to help us determine how to build products for the future. We think our future generations are going to look a lot more like this than like you and me. And everything will be just operated from the smartphone and basically will be a few core services that they can actually touch and basically get themselves, make online transactions very, very quickly. Absolutely. So recently you have announced the Next Billion Initiative from Google Asia Pacific, of course, with the acquisition of Pi.co. How did this idea of Next Billion came about? Is it just accumulation of various initiatives that has started already and then you are trying to build on top of that? So, you know, APAC has always been a pretty important market for us, and we've had a number of initiatives. I think over the last few years, what we realized was, you know, we kind of need to have a very focused approach to this and sort of bring a lot of these efforts together under one, one umbrella so that we are driving it more. And this in combination with my moving back to Singapore, 
I think, you know, helped us, has helped, helped us put together this broad initiative. You know, in the long run, we want to build more products for the region from the region. And so, you know, we're investing a lot in our India offices. We're investing a lot in our China offices. We have large engineering teams here. And now we're building out Singapore yeah, as an engineering office. I tend to joke that I live within a six-hour flying radius of half the world's population. So, you know, if you want to be a, a product person and building products for our users, there's no better place to live than in Singapore. Yeah, and I know that because, of course, with the initiatives that's recently announced by the government of Singapore to build an engineering team. Can you talk a little bit about the thinking behind the building up an engineering team and how would you see that that will happen in the next couple of years? So, yeah, Singapore already is is turning into quite a very good engineering hub. As as you well know, having done your previous startups and what you're doing with Singapore, starting to see very good technical talent come about here. The startup ecosystem is super exciting. And so, you know, when you look around in the region and you actually want to build products closer to the region, it makes natural sense for us. This is also, you know, the, the fact that in Singapore we have very high connectivity, both in terms of data connectivity, but also, you know, how well we're connected to the rest of the world in terms of flights and everything else. You know, this becomes a great city where we can sort of build a great engineering team. The other thing I think about is, you know, I'd love to, for Singapore to turn into a global engineering hub. This is just stepping aside from my just Google role. And at some level, like, to do that, you know, we need to be able to create an ecosystem and an environment where we can attract the best technical talent from around the world, independent of their nationality, independent of their backgrounds, to come to Singapore to build products for users around us. And so that's that's what we're doing. And I'm really happy that the you know the government is is focusing a lot on this. Mm. As you know, I'm on the board of IDA, mm. and as IDA, you know, we're also very keen on ensuring that Singapore turns into a, a global tech hub. So that, you know, for the next, you know, next generation, for the next 20 years, we're able to build products and services for, for the region. And mm. I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity. And I have to say congratulations for now being part of the board for the Infocom Authority of Singapore on that. So I wanted to sort of get a, some thought leadership from you because of thinking about, you probably have a lot of experience thinking about ecosystems in Asia Pacific. Asia is a mobile first world. What are the interesting trends you have observed in the last one, two years? So I think one of the interesting things that's happened over the last, uh, and I've broadened the, the time frame a little bit, mm-hmm. maybe three or four or five years, is that the consumers in Asia have become, the, the, the numbers have become big enough that you can build multi, you know, billion dollar businesses. We've seen this happen in China already, right? China is probably the largest, you know, in many ways, stable of unicorns in the world. India has had tremendous success over the last few years. Flipkart, Snapdeal, Paytm, you know, Ola, there's some tremendously exciting companies that have come out of India catering for users in India. We're starting to see the same in Indonesia. Companies like Tokopedia and all are doing incredibly, incredibly well. And so I think, you know, what's most exciting is given the rise of mobile in this area, now there is a large enough consumer base that are willing to use services, mobile internet services, that is making it very exciting for companies to be built for users in this region. So I think that's one of the biggest changes. And the, what's exciting is these services are all being built mobile first. And so, you know, if you look at how in many ways messaging gets used in Asia, whether it's WeChat or Line or, you know, WhatsApp, it sort of shows you the way the future is going to go in the rest of the world. And in many ways, I think the U.S. and Western Europe are lagging behind. But when you look at the younger audiences, in even US and Western Europe, you will see them using products exactly the way as users use it in APAC. 
So I think it's it's tremendously exciting because we're starting to in you know we're starting to show sort of the direction of direction which with product innovation needs to go. I, I like the way how Google thinks about mobile across Asia Pacific. I'm also very interested to understand, for example, a, a city in Singapore were having very good LTE network access, which is 4G level, versus a city, say, in Myanmar, Yangon, which is just about to start, versus a city in India, where there's an emerging 3G and moving up to LTE network. How do you see mobile usage across these different three cities? No, that's a, that's a great question. You know, Singapore, in many ways, is an outlier in this case. But what's exciting is when you look across APAC, you're seeing people leapfrog to the latest technologies. Like a lot of places, 2G is not going to get used as much because you already have 3G. That's what the network in Myanmar that they're putting in, which is super exciting. But also I think, you know, people across this region are using Android. They're using Android apps and services. And so the experiences that they're looking for are very similar. Right? That's the ones that they're, they're getting used to across. And to be totally fair at some level, you know, I'm actually quite surprised to see how popular, for example, online video is in all these markets. And what you realize is, what I realized is once users get a taste for an experience, they will figure out a way to get it. So, you you know, in across APAC, you see people going to Wi-Fi cafes and watching YouTube. And this is why we, you know, we, we're, we think YouTube offline has become so popular because people go to Wi-Fi cafes and they quickly take a few videos offline that they spend then the rest of the day watching. So you can see people sort of working around some of the, you know, developing challenges that they're having with networks. But also I find like network operators here are also starting to move very fast. They are stuck because they see the demand, they see users using the products and services. And they're reacting very, very quickly. There's the pessimistic camp in the world and there's the optimistic camp in the world. I'm clearly in the optimistic camp of the world. I totally agree with that since I know you for so long. So Asia is poised to grow in the next decade. What areas of upcoming technologies do you think that will be having a high impact? For example, self-driving cars, 3D printing and artificial intelligence. You know, I don't, I, I can't presume to predict what will have a huge impact, you know. I'm obviously a huge fan of self-driving cars, given sort of the traffic situation in all the cities I work in. You know, self-driving cars will only only make them much safer and much more efficient. You know, I think the whole concept of artificial intelligence and machine learning particularly, I think is going to be very, very interesting, and especially its applications to these markets. If you've taken a look at Google Photos or what we've done with you know, Google Now, you can start seeing a lot of what can be done with machine learning if you can do. Another very interesting example of machine learning is Google Translate, where you know even though a lot of this content, like it's, it's, we're using machine learning at scale to help provide translations across contexts. 3D printing is interesting. I don't know what will happen in the long run, but you know one of the things of 3D printing, if, you're, if the costs can come down and the quality can be particularly high, is how it decentralizes manufacturing which can have tremendous impacts broadly on this region because a lot of production happens here. So, you know, I am, um, I think we live in very, very exciting times. And like you, Bernard, I'm, I'm sort of eagerly looking forward to seeing what technologies change our lives and, you know, hoping that we, all of us in the tech community in Singapore can play a small role in sort of helping, helping move that forward. It's always fun to talk to you, Caesar, because it, it, Offline, we always talk a lot about technology trends and how things are going. So here comes my last question. How do my audience find you? 
Well, you can find me on Twitter. I tend to not have a huge, huge social presence, but on Twitter, you can get me at, at Caesar S. Otherwise, uh, on LinkedIn and other services. Mm. And you can find me at BernardLeung.com or at BLeungCW. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. We can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Acast. And of course, always drop us a tweet. And once again, Caesar, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Bernard.